This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to all topics that lie on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with the two expert leads of our uh, climate and clean tech service for financial uh, sector participants, Conway Irwin and Peter Gardette. How are you all? Well, thanks. Doing great. Thank you. Good. And, and for, uh, I guess, longtime listeners, they will recognize both of your voices. And we will be continuing a conversation in a way that we kicked off, what, about four to six weeks ago around COP26. And our last episode on that topic was really around what COP26 means to investors or how it is more meaningful that this uh, UN event is more meaningful to investors than some of the prior UN climate-focused events. And we are, what, about six weeks away from COP26, four weeks away? I think I saw this recently. It's 40 odd days away from right now. So very soon. It's amazing. It still feels a little like summer in New York. So the idea that it's going to be November in 40 odd days is a little uh, even weirder than the fact that COP26 is finally here. Well, in fact, the last day of summer is today, right? Oh. I'm pretty sure in Houston we're quite excited about this because it's miserably hot outside. And not only is it the last day of summer, but there's a cold front that's supposed to come in. So it's going to drop into like the 80s or something later this week. Oh, chilly. <laughs> Rigid. Um, all right. Well, so, so it's the, the, the last day of summer, but, but also in New York City this week is the UN General Assembly, uh, which is meeting. And I guess before we get into the, to the COP26 Conway, so, so the, the UN General Assembly uh, meeting, which... I guess, did it kick off today? Yes. It kicked off today, and there's been a few surprises, not least of which being South Korean pop group BTS, who drew more attendance on its YouTube video quite quickly than, uh, of course, is in the the audience today. Have you watched the video yet? Not yet. (laughs) I got got roped into it by, uh, I suppose, just clickbait, but but I have watched it. I was quite surprised to see uh, the Korean pop, but that seems to be, um, this is, I think, their year, third UN event. I promise you we're not going to spend a lot of time on Korean pop climate change, <laughs> but I think this is their third UN event. It's a great, uh, it's a, a great representation of globalization, which is exactly the problems that the UN needs to wrestle with, you know, the promise and peril of globalization. So, in a way, however random it may feel to the UN General Assembly uh, themselves, it's a pretty good way of bringing attention, I think, to a lot of the issues that would otherwise get get ignored. Well, and the, the hook from their, uh, the, the, the video that, that you all can watch later and all of our listeners have surely watched but by now, but is uh, we don't need to talk the talk. Uh, we, we just need to walk the walk or something, which would seem a relevant theme for, for us as we get into COP26. So aside from some of the Korean pop hooks, what other similarities might we be looking at between the General Assembly and COP26, Conway? Uh, well, I guess uh, one issue would be thematic. 
climate is going to be a big topic of discussion or has been a big topic of discussion at the UN General Assembly, which which actually opened on um, the 14th of September, officially. Oh. Apologies. So, you know, because this is one of the biggest multilateral issues facing sort of what you can call the international community. I know a lot of people really don't like that term. It's not generally much of a community, but um, facing basically every country on earth is is climate change. And another similarity there is, you know, these are incredibly large events. The UN General Assembly generally draws, you know, 10,000 people. This year in New York, um, it's about 1,000, which is great for traffic. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of people who have strong interest in representation, in uh, raising issues that they feel are important, within this kind of high profile prestigious event, having either the sense or the, the reality of being a bit shut out of it can be, I think, maybe demotivating in some ways. And uh, it doesn't sound like COP26 is gonna have anywhere near the same limitation on attendance. The, the UK has relaxed COVID restrictions for attendees, uh, inoculations are being provided, estimates, you know, they, they really vary widely, but we're talking about tens of thousands of people, not just at the actual parties themselves, but also the side events and all the interested parties that show up to make cases for various uh, various causes. Uh, it's going to be a much larger event, delayed by COVID, probably somewhat limited by COVID, but not, it doesn't seem, on the scale that the UN General Assembly has been. Do we know if BTS will be at COP26 as well? Well, we know the Queen of England will be at COP26, okay. and uh, we know some other high-profile names will be there, <laughs> including President Biden, who was also spoke the UN General Assembly. Who gave his speech uh, earlier today, and, and Peter, so, uh, and I'm right about that, that was not the, the uh, I'm not confused on the weeks, but, but Biden spoke today, and there seems to be a theme from Biden, you know, throughout his speech of unity and collaboration. And I think that the UN general or the secretary general kind of kicked things off as saying that we're at the, the, the quote edge of an abyss talking about an increasingly divided world that it appears, you know, at least a lot of the rhetoric seems to be around removing those division. And, you know, I guess that's particularly important given some of the diplomacy that you guys flagged in your recent paper, um, that diplomacy meets markets on the need for collaboration or unity around Article 6 in particular at COP26. Can, can you talk a little bit about Article 6 and, and the parties involved in that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in many ways, talking, thinking about unity and the global international community, all of these concepts, the last big victory for that idea was the Paris Agreement. It happened right before, right alongside everything that happened with Brexit, the you know, theme of rising nationalism, all of these different elements that are kind of out there in the, the diplomatic world today. Paris, the Paris Agreement on climate change was a, a huge victory for you know, the idea that there should be global standards and global cooperation around a global issue. And one of the ways that handling the risks of climate change and turning everyone, uh, everyone's attention, kind of performing this big pivot into a clean tech, renewable powered, less emitting world and thereby avoiding the worst effects of climate change. 
comes out of the Paris Agreement and comes out of the idea that you can put a price on emissions of carbon and that that price can be managed by carbon offsets, essentially a financial product that represents a ton of carbon. That financial product can then be traded, uh, a market price can be found, and economies, governments, international organizations can all respond by signals. It's a sophisticated concept, but one that has been used so so widely in other areas. In many ways, it's it was an inspiration that came out of uh, the idea that climate change is a risk and that uh, in some ways it's the flip side of the mirror image of commodity risk. Commodity risk has traditionally been handled through global uh, markets mm-hmm. or financial products. And this way, in this concept, this idea of Article 6 is that in many ways you can use those same ideas, that same network of price signals only this time that it'll be a carbon offset. So that either represents a sink of carbon, so carbon that's pulled out of the atmosphere one way or another, or what you can think of as a spread. So sinks versus spreads, a a disappearing ton of carbon, or a ton of carbon that would have been emitted under normal circumstances, but given climate change risks will not be emitted. So you kind of, there are these two paths, the two ways of essentially generating a carbon offset. Then you can imagine we all live in a world of national governments. So if this is a global problem being, you know, solved by national governments, they're going to need to be able to trade these products amongst themselves mm-hmm. to meet nationally determined contributions, which is the mechanism by which emissions are brought down. So there's this market for this international global market for carbon offsets. This market has existed for a while. It existed under the Kyoto Protocol's clean development mechanism, but was designed and administered from a very centralized uh, United Nations perspective, and therefore wasn't very useful as a market. They never got big enough to really be a price signal. A lot of the individual countries didn't necessarily recognize the CDM offsets. So the question here, the question as we go into Glasgow and to COP26 is how can you allow countries to recognize each other's offsets, to utilize this financial product in the most efficient way, to reduce their own emissions, to reflect emissions reductions that they've already done, to even out the path of transition if you're a large oil producing country and you really want to be able to continue to produce oil, you can potentially buy offsets from a country that has a large forestry sector, for example, mm-hmm. and simply you know, uses its forests for that. And that's the ideal. I think agreement on Article 6 is something everybody has hopes for, and there's been a lot of advocacy and lobbying around, and the financial firms are very interested in it, but that we probably won't see a quantitative agreement on Article 6. What we'll probably see is a qualitative agreement, an idea that the pronouncement that cross-border trade in these financial instruments is acceptable as a way to offset your national emissions profile. And all they really need to do is say that because, in fact, the network of trade is bilateral anyway. When you go out into the world, uh, you are buying a barrel of oil from Saudi Arabia or Texas, and here you would be buying a carbon offset from Chile or 
uh, you know, Western Europe, you know, it kind of is always a bilateral exchange. And so where allowed that to happen? Where to so, so Paris Agreement was signed in, in 2015, right? So right. what progress has been made on Article Six going into the, this November COP26 event? Is it more localized than localized at the country level, or why is? Um, I mean, it's obviously complex to to work, you know, across countries. But but surely in the past what six years, there, there's evidence of success and perhaps evidence of challenge. On the sinks side, so pulling carbon out of the air, the market has developed, I would say, really quickly and expanded quite rapidly in the use of voluntary markets that represent underlying forestry assets or uh, carbon capture and storage of some kind. There's actually been a huge amount of work done, and that's a relatively easy counting question because you've got a you know scientifically how much uh, carbon a certain number of trees consume, and so it's a relatively easy math. Mm-hmm. The spread side, so like if you're on one path as an economy and you want to get to a cleaner path, and the difference between those two represents the emissions that didn't happen, and then you can somehow monetize that, it, even describing it, it's a much more complicated question mathematically, but also how do you track that, who certifies it, what was the baseline to begin with, uh, how does the target work over time? It's just a much more complicated question. So success on Article 6 probably looks like some kind of overarching recognition that the sinks part of the market that's reflected in voluntary offsets has gone well, has expanded. There's an, uh, you know a lot of interest there. The financial firms are ready to trade it, have already begun doing so. And a simultaneous recognition that on this on the kind of spread side, uh, there's work to be done. You know that's probably a much larger, more more complicated question that will have to be solved through things like a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And could we call today's trading environment? global or, or is it limited participation from a few certain participants? On the voluntary side, very much global. I mean, I think you see people buying uh, any kind of range of offsets. Sometimes those offsets have higher levels of official verification than others. I mean, as with any financial product market, you get a wide array of contractual uh, organization behind the product. But in the compliance market, that's much more local. You know, if you are in the California compliance market, which essentially California said, you know, we need you to buy this many carbon sinks to account for your emissions, you can really only trade within their network. So there's appeal for that if you own California assets and you're a global asset manager. So in a way that has a connection to global capital, but it's the voluntary market that's much more interesting here. Okay. And Conway, as we're thinking about global frameworks and global agreements, the, the, the two big players that, that, that you flagged in your paper and are you know, front of mind in kind of all the conversations these days are China and the United States, which are particularly relevant here, given the high level uh, of emissions. But that I'll, I'll read from just a, a you know, a couple outtakes uh, from your paper. Without U.S.-China cooperation, there's limited scope for progress on climate action. And without agreement on Article 6, there's limited scope for global trade and carbon emissions. These seem to be some of the big issues. Can, can you talk about how China and the U.S. are coming in uh, to, to COP26? Yes, absolutely. So 
China and the U.S., they are the biggest emitters, right? So without their buy-in, without efforts to reduce emissions, it kind of, you know, the rest of the world combined could do its very best. But you really need those two big blocks uh, in terms of emissions. And going into the Paris Agreement, in that time period, the U.S. and China were sort of unusually aligned on climate. It was one of the most promising areas for the relationship, very, um, very much in the spirit of cooperation. And this time around, it's much more competitive. So uh, the U.S. has been trying to get China to address climate and cooperate on climate, sort of distinct from other very contentious issues of the in the relationship, including um, human rights uh, with regard to the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang in Western China. Um, other areas as well, uh, South China Sea, what is broadly seen globally as uh, territorial aggression by China and um, you know, also the trade restrictions that were imposed during the Trump administration but have not yet been removed. So um, there, are, there are big sticking points in the relationship. And that is frankly an impediment to climate cooperation because the rest of, of the relationship is so tense. So the US is pushing China to uh, look at climate separately and to cooperate with the US and with other countries on climate sort of to the exclusion, exclusion of these other issues. Whereas China would like to look at the relationship holistically. And the other, the other issue here is that, you know, China has, um, China is under pressure, not just from the US, just from globally, um, because its nationally determined contribution is broadly seen as really not as ambitious as it could be and not as ambitious as it should be. So one of the big issues is emissions peaking by 2030, but no restrictions on emissions until then. So they can just spike from here through the next decade. The next nine uh, years. Right, right. Before, uh, before sort of embarking on the path to net zero for the next 20 years. And that is, you know, that's that's a problem, especially given um, the new data that we've seen, new report findings um, suggesting that the Earth is warming faster and the climate is changing faster than had been um, projected. So China is under pressure from the U.S., but is also because of the nature, the contentious nature of this relationship right now not inclined to put forth a more ambitious climate target just because the U.S. is urging it to, right? It does not want to bow. China, Beijing does not want to bow to U.S. pressure. Um, and that is just a diplomatic reality. That's something that has to be worked around. It cannot be argued away. Uh, there is no sort of framework for undoing the tensions that exist. So if China comes forward with a more ambitious target, it's going to be for its own reasons, not because the U.S. wants it to, whereas the U.S. is sort of putting its all, you know, John Kerry is is putting clearly so much effort into um, finding a way forward with China on this issue. It may actually be counterproductive in the end. And where, what would be, uh, I mean, uh, obviously 2021 or 2022 would be more aggressive than 2030. What are, there what, 197 parties, 197 countries participating. What are some other, is everybody at 20, is everyone at 2029 and China's at 2030? Or what, what's the range in some of these baseline years that people are working against? Well, some of the very smallest countries have already reached net zero, but uh, <laughs> we're talking about negligible emissions. When you look kind of across the scope, but there are a lot of countries and a lot of targets, but one number that um, you see again and again and again and again is net zero by 2050. 
So start now, move towards net zero, net zero by 2050. That's a really common, common nationally. From today is a baseline. Yes. Rather than 10 oh. years from now. Actually, I can't say for sure that it's from today as a baseline. It may be from 2020 as a baseline, but you know, net zero is is kind of I don't want to say it's an absolute target, um, but you know, how much you emit has to be balanced by how much you sequester uh, or avoid. So, you know, from wherever you start, mm -hmm. net zero is net zero. And China's 2030 to 2060, right? So they yes. effectively added 10. Yes, giving themselves 10 more years to limit. Okay. And so I, I guess, Peter, from, you know, some, some of the, the, the U.S. perspective on this, um, you know, Conway mentioned John Kerry and then and Biden's uh, conversation earlier today. I think I think the words he used were, were endless diplomacy, uh, maybe, the, but just a, a real focus on, on diplomacy exactly to, to the paper's topic. Um, that seems a real shift in tone from uh, you know uh, prior years and, and going at you know having a conversation with China with a much more kind of win or lose mentality rather than let, let's find something that works for everyone. Um, is that a fair assessment? I mean, I think they would love to get along with China on this front uh, while being able to challenge them in other ways. I mean, ultimately, the two economies are so closely tied together particularly when it comes to the very technologies that the U.S. would like to use to solve this problem. You know, 80% of the world's solar panels are manufactured in China. So the two are, you know, tied together when it comes to solving this problem. What I think is so interesting for, uh, you know, financial market participants, if you like, is that they're being asked to take a, a different role in this COP in this whole process around climate diplomacy than they've taken before. You know, it's, you possibly have to look all the way back to Bretton Woods to find private sector bankers taking such a leading role in determining an issue that is uh, really diplomatic at its core. I mean, not only is Kerry's team filled with bankers and he himself has a, something of a financial background and bent, but currently working financiers, Larry Fink is a good example, mm -hmm. will be at COP26 and will be sitting at the same table as you know, heads of state, foreign ministers, and that reflects just how much work they've done in understanding and looking to manage climate change risk, which they feel is just not reflected in, in markets today. And they believe they have a solution, uh, part of which is Article 6. Which seems also to be, and this came up, you know, in some prior conversations, with, not conversations that I've had, but conversations I've read with President Biden um, on shareholder capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. And it seems like these climate issues are, are really a, a tangible example of where stakeholder capitalism um, with finance participants at the table is a real kind of laboratory or experiment um, to, to see how stakeholder capitalism can play out. Is that fair to say? Uh, there are two ways of looking at that. On the face of it, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I also, I think increasingly, the impacts of climate change are so visible and so immediately relevant to balance sheets that the time horizon in which there are good shareholder returns in pursuing a 
climate denial strategy is shrinking really fast. I mean, I think you do see some companies that continue to say, what we know is, is how to produce in a way that is emitting, and we really need someone else to tell us what the target is. But I also think you see companies that just a few years ago would have said, this is really not any of our business. If the government tells us to do something, we'll do something. Now viewing this as a real supply chain risk and a real palpable financial risk. And if it is for them, even if that's on a two to three year horizon, that's relevant to shareholders. And in Conway, as we're looking, you know, we're, we're talking about China, US here, but as we're looking at, at the other participants, are, are we seeing, um, are, are the two of them, China and the US, kind of setting the tone for, for others to follow? Or, or are there, or is there, are there alliances that, that we should be aware of? Or, or does the US feel like it's on an island? Or does China feel like it's on an island? How should we look at that? That's a good question. I mean, I think there are always alliances outside of the big two, right? You have a lot of sort of climate forward countries. I mean, the EU obviously um, will act as a block here, but you know, you have groups of, of climate forward countries and then you have groups of, I don't want to call them climate laggards necessarily, because that sounds, um, you know, more negative than I would mean it. But especially if you have a group of countries that's that's fully reliant on fossil fuels for, um, to sustain them economically, mm-hmm. you have to expect that those countries will find ways to work together to put forward solutions that align better with their economic or political priorities. Uh, for example, there's the Oil Producers Forum, of, of which the U.S. is a member, uh, and as is Saudi Arabia. And um, one of their stated goals is to find pragmatic ways to get to net zero, including um, development of CCUS. So if you are an oil producing country, you have every interest in ensuring that abatement mechanisms exist, are well developed, you know, that the costs come down so that you can continue to produce oil while meeting your net zero targets by 2050 or whatever the case may be. And as we look at these other countries, are they, should we see them as more influencers of how China and the US are interacting? Um, where there, there's a shared goal of doing something, um, you know, collaborative for the, the climate and the global economy, or are they more passive observers, or is a split where some are saying, all right, well, I'm going with team A and I'm going with team one? I think when it comes to climate policy and ambition, the biggest driver, I mean, International prestige is, you know, is important. There's definitely uh, both the U.S. and China, I think, are, are and, and the EU actually, are, um, you know, staking claims as climate leaders and, and competing to be leaders in that space. But ultimately, it comes down to domestic politics, right? You cannot drag a populace kicking and screaming into a climate-forward economy if they're going to fight you every step of the way, if they're going to vote you out of office, if they're going to, you know, react to the removal, say, of uh, gasoline or petrol subsidies uh, on which they rely to keep their transportation costs down. So, you know, the interests of these countries, we're not just talking about the leadership. We're talking about a leadership that governs a group of people that may or may not be all in on these climate solutions. I mean, I think it's really interesting that 
most countries in the EU appear to be, you know, and and the public as well, they, they very much appear to be on board with um, with really addressing climate change. You know, you've seen fracking bans in France, whatever the case may be. But as soon as um, electricity prices start to rise, right. people start to demonstrate. They get very upset. So, um, you know, changes that are aligned with climate goals, but not aligned with public sentiment are really put any country's leadership at risk of uh, being booted out, basically. So well, there's a really delicate balance there. So to pursue that thought for a minute, the, this is all happening as Europe is dealing with extremely high energy prices yes. on the back of depressed uh, gas supply and I think depressed wind at the seems like with energy supply right now, everything that can go wrong is going wrong in terms of consumer prices. (laughs) Is that, do we expect that to influence COP26 in in ways that perhaps we weren't seeing two weeks ago or a month ago? Yeah, sure, possibly. I think there's a bigger question here and it plays to your small country versus the two big players Mm -hmm. question as well, which is around technology. You know, the more smaller countries, smaller economies are uh, key players in the kinds of technologies that address climate change. So renewable energy, I mean, I'm thinking here of Denmark and uh, Vestas and Orsted, they're two green energy major companies. As leading global players, they are to the wind industry what Taiwan is to the semiconductor industry. You know, so you have this very interesting thing where a relatively small entity has a relatively big footprint in this field. And that's a good way of addressing some of those issues around aligning economic incentives and political incentives together so that you have, with climate, so that you have essentially a interested, an interest group that uh, supports climate policy because it's good for that interest group economically. And if it's big enough, you know, you get a, a, you can really influence things. And does that also add to the presence of the financial sector or the financial sector add to the presence of this influence in ways that are different? And we were all in a conversation earlier today where, you know, this political turnover element kind of came up and seats can change every two years, four years, six years, but financial structures are slower to change. And if you know some of these participants are there or interactive in a way that perhaps they haven't been, does that help give this whole event more credence and more longevity in spite of political turnover? Well, that's one of the arguments that, that we've been making is that you know the diplomacy angle is really, really difficult. You have a lot of parties with a lot of competing interests. It's really hard to find agreement. Um, but if you make even what are sometimes somewhat subtle changes to market regulation, for example, you know, looking at moves to mandate climate risk disclosure in financial reporting, mm-hmm. that's a you know, it's it's a big change for a single company, for any single company. You know, that's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of work to add a layer of reporting on top of existing financial reporting. But when it, once that is in place, and once you have comparable numbers, it engenders a bigger change. It allows people to make decisions based on that information. And once that information has been mandatory, I think it would be very, very difficult to then say to investors, 
I no longer have to provide you with this, so I'm not going to. So what you see is a small regulatory change, a relatively small regulatory change that leads to a very big change in perception at the shareholder level, at the lender level, at the, you know, at the insurer level. So yes, these, these changes can have uh, really large overarching effects. And even if a company is, say, located outside of the U.S., it's not a U.S. company, but maybe it wants to list in the U.S., maybe it is seeking funds from a U.S.-based lender, it wants to somehow transact in the U.S., even though that company is outside of U.S. jurisdiction, it still is required to provide that same level of transparency. So you have this ripple effect where uh, the regulations that are enacted in the U.S. don't necessarily have to apply to companies in other countries, but by default they do because of the U.S.'s market power. Okay. And, and so, I mean, you, you mentioned the word perception, um, which is also a word that came out uh, in the paper. And the, I think here the, the words were something effective if this event is perceived as a failure, it has you know, hugely negative consequences. So how, what, what can we expect to see coming out of this from, you know, the, the, there's reality and there's perception and, and the grand scheme of things, per- perception is more important or defines the reality uh, regardless of anything else. So, so when we're looking at post-event perceptions, do we expect, I don't want to say a winner or a loser, like it, it seems to that there could be a winner or loser kind of side coming out of it, but I, I would think that the one wants to perceive this as being unity and, and diplomacy has worked in, in ways where it's not a there-or type of activity. I think there are skeptics out there who are going to view this as a failure no matter what, you know, no matter what gets agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, the same people who don't believe um, that the UN really serves a function at all primarily because it has no enforcement powers. Uh, And I think there will be definitely, there's going to be a large universe of people that's really disappointed if there isn't kind of a big showy outcome. But, you know, this is a chance for countries to come together, not necessarily as a block that agrees, but to come together and to bring their finance ministers together and to bring their sort of really high profile financial people together and, and powerful NGOs to make the kinds of arrangements, agreements, deals, uh, or discuss structural changes such as to financial reporting that have sort of a, a ground up impact that builds over time. And it will be unfortunate. It'll definitely take some of the wind out of the sails of the uh, of climate efforts if the headlines are lackluster or if this is framed as a failure. There's no question. I mean, part of what you see right now is just this incredible demand for green investments, right? For people to find places to put their money that is green. And maybe, you know, maybe some of that enthusiasm will be a bit deflated by uh, the perception that this sort of global community cannot come together and, and forge a path forward on, on climate. At the same time, if you have enough of these sort of ground up agreements, arrangements, deals, these things will ultimately grow and they will you know, spread throughout markets in different ways and ways that are probably pretty unpredictable. And, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily, it can be, but it's not necessarily headlines that make movement, that make change. 
it can often be the stuff that nobody notices, the technical details. Article 6, I mean, who in the general public even knows what Article 6 is, right? Hopefully but, a lot more people. <laughs> probably a lot more now. <laughs> but a headline that sounds really boring can actually be a signifier of something very, very big. So I think we can just hope that the people who are actually putting money into you know clean tech and climate efforts can read the tea leaves and see what is positive coming out of this conference. And perhaps, you know, the market begins to shift from there. Well, in, in some ways, I, I, you know, I'm hesitant to, to, to argue it out loud because we sit and look at this, you know, all, all day and talk about it all the time. But there's almost the, just the fact that we're talking about it and so many are talking about it now before the event even happens you can almost call it a success in some ways, Peter, before anything, but before anybody gets in there and shakes a single hand or takes their mask off that, I mean, one, there is, I, I think, real evidence and something we were talking about this morning on, on the, the green bonds and just the, the, the discount to, to other borrowing that clean tech is seeing. But two, as Conway just said, people are talking about Article 6 when previously they didn't know what Article 6 was. Yeah, in some ways, the fact that expectations are so high for COP26 and that it has become such a byword for climate action is a reflection of a real demand for climate action from such a wide number of constituencies, a number of constituencies that didn't see themselves as aligned before Paris and have become aligned since. So I think you're you're absolutely right about that. I don't think this is a train that is going to be thrown off the tracks by a lack of a giant, you know, kumbaya moment, COP26. But at the same time, it's absolutely true that the UN may in fact not be the ideal organization to deal with this over the long term. The UN was established to be a meeting place, and that's what this is going to be. But that part of the problem with earlier climate mechanisms was that we expected the UN to somehow act as a global government, when it is not. And mm-hmm. it's going to be the, the national governments and all the financial, scientific, international institutions that connect them through which climate change responses will work. Given the, the, the focus that we've had you know, all from the financial sector and our explicit, you know, direction of this conversation to the financial sector. Can COP26 be a market moving event or is it going to, is it still not influencing things in the short term in the way that it, uh, other headlines may? Yeah, I mean, on the Article 6 piece, you know, any sign of overarching agreement that that can be used for verified offsets is huge for that market. And uh, I think you would see an explosion in open interest and trading activity in the existing contracts. So that's highly relevant. Uh, Conway, you and I have talked about the how the China-US piece works here with sanctions and so on, if they either do or don't get along at COP26, right? Yeah, it could be you know, a sign of, of more attention to come, certainly. Not necessarily a death knell, but you know, probably an indicator that there is no return to the same spirit that led to the signing of the Paris Agreement. But the flip side of that is that you know, the argument 
is being made that uh, U.S.-China competition to be leaders in clean tech is not necessarily such a bad thing. If you have the world's two largest economies throwing their entire weight behind what is considered uh, an economic or national security imperative mm -hmm. to really move the needle on clean tech and become or you know, if you're China, remain a leader in clean tech, you will probably see tremendous resources, um, government-backed resources being channeled into these sectors to try to, you know, to try to attain leadership or sustain leadership. So in a way, competition could be cooperation if there's alignment around, you know, that, that absolute end goal. Right. Which could be a nice positive to come out of this kind of <laughs> on either side in a strange way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we uh 40 days uh, or thereabouts. Uh, we will watch for the start of this. Uh, and at least I will be curious to see if BTS arrives. <laughs> uh, now that I've got the, the hook in my head uh, and we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation with you guys on maybe the, the, the post-event perception or the post-event realities. So thank you all both for uh, joining today. Thank, thank you. you. All right. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.